our scripture that we're reading today is from the book of 2 Samuel. We'll be reading chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I am Ron. I'm one of the elders here at Pillar, and um, I get to continue our study this summer that concludes next week in the life and the heart of David. And I've been gone five weeks or so. I'm a teacher, and we uh, get the summers to go back to the States, and I'm from two areas. I'm from Oregon, but really I was born, and I was raised in Rhode Island, and I lived there for the first 18 years of my life. Now, I'm the only Rhode Islander in this room, uh, and in fact, for your entertainment, I'm going to preach this whole sermon in a Rhode Island accent. It'll be wicked awesome. Uh, but it, in Rhode Island, there are a few things. If you were a Rhode Islander, you would know a few things if I said them to you. Coffee milk, Dell's lemonade, hot wieners, don't ask, and Roger Williams. Now, Roger Williams is the founder of Rhode Island. And Roger Williams, even if you haven't been from Rhode Island, you may have heard of Roger Williams because he's often seen as a, a true hero of religious liberty. So he was kicked out of uh, Massachusetts colony and went down and founded Rhode Island in 1636. And he's seen as this hero, a uh, hero for religious liberty and that government and churches shouldn't be mixed up together. And he's seen as a hero for uh, negotiations in a friendly way for Native Americans, perhaps some of the first good real, uh, negotiations with Native Americans from the colonists. And so you can kind of see here the top one, you know, Roger Williams, and then a statue of Roger Williams overlooking downtown Providence in this very strange pose that no, Rhode Islanders don't even understand what's going on there. But here he died 18, 1683, Buried in an unmarked grave. Well, after a century or and a half or so, they realized what an important figure Roger Williams is. So they wanted to move his unmarked grave body and move it over to Prospect Park, where it is today, where he's buried, kind of where that statue is. And so as they dug it up, they found something very unique in his coffin. You see, there's an apple tree right next to it. And the apple tree's root system went down through the coffin, broke through the coffin, went through Roger Williams' skull, and almost followed down his spine. And when it hit his hips, the, the root system split and actually curls up at his feet. This tree ate Roger Williams, which is very strange. The fruit of the tree, of the apple tree, was nourished by the decaying body of America's founder. I mean, not America's founder, oh, but that's... We're really putting a significance in Rhode Island there, uh, of Rhode Island's founder. And so here you can see this uh, strange story of Rhode Island. There's a lot of strange things in Rhode Island. This is just one of many. 
But here you can go to the John Brown House on the east side of Providence, and you can see this, this root system that supposedly comes from this. People ate the fruit, and they were eating somehow in some strange way molecules of the nation's founder. Now, people doubt this is true, uh, but it's, it's still strange. There's the branch, so it must be true right there. And you can, you can see in the branch kind of where his hips were. It goes down to his legs and his curling up of his feet. Now, whether or not this is true, this doesn't matter. It actually amplifies the power of America's... Uh, oh my gosh, I did it again. Rhode Island's founder. Uh, basically, Rhode Island is America. Um, <laughs> Probably not true, but I really do like this metaphor. I like the metaphor that the fruit of what we have in our life comes from who we are. And in this case, in the story that is laid before us today, the fruit of sin is fed from our hearts. So just picture this. We have Roger Williams, and this tree comes from Roger Williams. Well, we're going to see this in David, that with David... This tree of sin comes out of these little decisions that David has made. So this all springs from David's sin. And so you heard in the, the reading that Lauren gave for us today is that David should have been in war, but he wasn't, kind of shirking his responsibilities. And rather, he stood looking at rooftops around him. There is Bathsheba. He brings her to him. And with this phrase that we ended today with, I am pregnant, this propels this branch into all kinds of deviousness from David. And this two-chapter narrative will eventually lead to her husband's death. So our main idea that we're going to look at today is this. Our sin seduces and spins us out of control until God's grace grounds us and gives us life. Our sin seduces and spins us out of control until God's grace grounds us and gives us life. Now, whenever we work through preaching with, with a narrative, it, narratives are much harder to preach than uh, expositionary texts because we have to hear the story and then look at the meaning of it and the application of it. And so to make this a little easier, I want us to focus in on the four characters that we're going to see in this story. So our first one is Bathsheba. And this is where David conceives his sin. So again, he's not at war. Rather than being at war, he is scanning rooftops. Whether he stumbles on her accidentally or intentionally, the text isn't clear. But we see in the text, so David sent messengers and took her, had her brought to him. This idea of this, this royal power that he, he is exerting. Everything from the text shows that Bathsheba has no say in this. He's the king. He sees what he wants. He takes it. He took her. She was brought to him and returned from him. She was, he, she was used by a lustful, sinning king. Now, instantly, in this, in this series that we've had about David, we see that this is a different David than the one who slain Goliath. This is a different David than the one who bested Saul. This is a king who lives large on his power and position and takes what he wants. In talking about this scene, Eric Geiger, in his book called How to Ruin Your Life, if, if you really need this, How to Ruin Your Life, uh, he says that just as a demolition expert places explosives inside of buildings so they'll weaken and implode, 
Three explosives that led to David's and ours implosions are isolation, boredom, and pride. These are three important things that we can see. If you want to ruin your life, put these explosions in there. Isolation. Everyone was at war. David wasn't. Boredom. He rises from a couch. He's sitting around all day. And pride. I'm the king. I do what I want. This is the recipe for some disastrous decisions that are coming up, which, of course, it does. He takes her, and she conceives a child from this uh, interaction with the king. This leads us to our second character, Uriah, her husband. This is where David covers his sin, conceives his sin with Bathsheba, and now Uriah is in the way. So his first act is, send me Uriah the Hittite. Pull him off the battlefield. Have him come back. I want to talk to him. Same word, brought. Same way that Bathsheba was brought to him out of royal edict, so isn't Uriah comes to him. David asks, how are people doing? And in this kind of like trying to chit-chat, trying to get to the subject, so how's the war? And Uriah is probably very confused why he's not fighting this war. Uh, But he says, David says, you know, take a night off. Go home, be with your wife. I don't want to draw any pictures here, but if he goes home and bees with his wife, bees with his wife, goes home and is with his wife, then he, the, who conceived the, the child will be hidden. Go home. But Uriah can't do that. How could he, in good conscience, go home and enjoy the pleasures of his house when his men were still fighting? So rather than going home, he kind of disobeys what David says and sleeps on the floor of David's servants. Well, David's annoyed at this. This guy's good character is getting in the way of my plan. So he says, uh, in verse 11, I mean, chapter 11, verse 12, David says to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. Stay another day, one more day. And that night, David invites him to this big feast. Uriah is very confused, I'm sure, by all of this. And he gives Uriah lots to drink, and Uriah ends up becoming drunk. And even though he's drunk, he still doesn't want to violate the soldier's code and goes home. So he is drunk now, sleeping on the servant's floor. Uriah shows more restraint drunk than David does sober. When does that ever happen? If David can't get Uriah to go to bed with his own wife to hide who the father is, David now has to go to plan B, kill Uriah. That'll be one way to cover this up. And you can almost see these decisions, this tree branch growing from David's decisions, snaking its way around and starting to affect other people. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he might be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And so David writes this uh, decision to have him go to the forefront, where it's it's a losing proposition. He's going to lose Uriah is the one who carries probably his own death sentence, hands it to Joab, the commanding officer. Okay, and they go into this place, and now Uriah is dead. But it's not only Uriah who's dead. 
that, that's dead, but also these other men who fought with Uriah because a whole group of men went into this fool's mission and also died. And so we can see that the lethal consequences of David's initial act, it continues to spread wider and wider. This orchard is growing and affecting more and more people. In early Puritan America, there is something called the New England Primer. And the New England Primer is a little school book for children where they have the letters to help kids to read and they use Bible stories. And so for you, it is you, Uriah, Uriah's beautiful wife made David seek his life. And so you can see a picture of that up right here uh, under the U. And I'm not exactly sure what's going on with the picture, but uh, Uriah's beautiful wife made David seek his life. Now, while that's not necessarily kid-appropriate, I guess, but it's wrong, too, because it wasn't Uriah's beautiful wife. This, Bathsheba has nothing to do with this. It is David's sinful heart that made David seek the life. It's not Bathsheba. And after this, we go for the last section in chapter 11. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. David sinned, and he covered it by sending Bathsheba back home. Then he tried to cover it to get Uriah to think that he was the father of his child. That didn't work, so he covered it by trying to kill, by killing Uriah along with other men. But the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. In one action, this tree root of decision comes up and breaks three commandments in one little instant here. Uh, he coveted literally his neighbor's wife, adultery, and murder. David thinks that Uriah's death, with Uriah's death, finally he can rest. The sin is covered. I don't have to worry about it. It's forgotten. David now, I mean, Bathsheba now is one of his wives. There's a new baby. Everything's happy again. What could possibly go wrong in this situation? We don't have to continue any further to understand how this David feels. Now, this is a different David. This is certainly a different David than we've seen the chosen of God, the apple of God's eye, the slayer of Goliath. This is a different David that we're looking at. We're looking at a deceiver, an adulterer, a murderer. He's flawed. Sometimes we put these heroes up on these pedestals, but he is flawed like so many of the Bible characters we read. And he's flawed like we are. Our sin is no longer covered, but it, it is bearing all kinds of poisonous fruit for us. All kinds of poisonous fruit. And then we move to part three. Our third character, Nathan the prophet, comes in. And this is where Nathan, David confesses his sin. So chapter 11 ends with, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But God doesn't end there. He doesn't give up on David at that moment. Chapter 12 begins with these words. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord doesn't end with David or with you with displeasure, but rather the Lord sends. And God uses David even more than God. God uses a very simple fictional story to bring David to this realization. And you may know this story, 
uh, from if you've been around church, but maybe you haven't been around church. But Nathan the prophet is going to tell a very simple fictional story. And sometimes we think that fiction just isn't real. I only read nod fiction because I want important things. Well, let me tell you as an English teacher, uh, and your English teacher will agree, uh, your past ones will agree with this, is that fiction sometimes has more truth in it than nonfiction does. And we can get power with fiction, and that's what we see with Nathan's story. So Nathan, the prophet, comes to David. They've had a good relationship. Somehow he gives him uh, an audience. And Nathan just tells this simple story. He said, you know, there was this rich man in a certain town, and he had lots of money. He had lots of a, a flock of all kinds of animals, lots of wealth, lots of prestige. And then in that same town, there was a poor man. And the poor man had a family and had one lamb, one cute little lamb. And this lamb was so cute, they used to feed it as if it were a little human, which is kind of annoying in a whole way, but that's the first fur baby <laughs> phenomenon started here. Uh, so the poor man feeds this little lamb and treated this lamb as if it was one of the family. Well, the rich man then has visitors come to town, and when visitors come to town, you've got to feed them. And so he had pity on all of his animals. Uh, I kind of like my animals. I don't want to hurt my animals. I think I'll go after that animal. And so he goes over from the poor man, grabs this cute little lamb, and slaughters it, kills it, and feeds it to his guests. Well, Nathan's telling the story that perhaps, like, I'm sure somewhere in the story, David was saying, why the heck is he telling this story? What's going on here? But after the, the idea that this poor lamb was killed and fed just for the rich man's uh, delight and for his guest, verse 5 says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now imagine Nathan's reaction to this. Nathan knows what's going on. I'm sure when David was talking about this man deserves to die, Nathan in his wise way would be like, hmm, yeah, you're probably right. He does deserve to die. There is nothing so adamant and so passionate than the rantings and pontifications of a hypocrite. Do you notice that? Somebody who is so against something as a hypocrite will rail against it in such a way. So we don't know why David responded like this. Perhaps this story really did touch David's heart for the injustice and the oppressed. And in that case, good job, David. Perhaps it was something, this is the old David, the old David that we remember. And he just cares. He was the poor shepherd boy. And he remembers what that was like. Maybe it's just that's what he thought Nathan wanted to hear, and he was virtue signaling uh, as such. But again, Nathan listens. The rich man had power and position and wealth. The poor man had none of those, just the lamb. And the rich took what little the poor man even had and had no pity on him. And then Nathan gives him the left hook. And the left hook is a phrase. So on one hand, David's own words come to haunt him, this man deserves to die. And then Nathan says, you are the man. I want to know what the tone of inflection of that would be. You are the man. Or was it quiet? You are the man. 
Either way, it cut David to the quick. You are the man. And you pair these two together. This man deserves to die. You are the man. I deserve to die. See, that kings are to cherish and care for people, not exploit or manipulate and destroy them, which is exactly what David has done. And then uh, Nathan goes further. Because of what you've done, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so we have this, this idea, Nathan giving the curse of God on David here because of this. The sword shall never leave your house. And we see this. We see this in David's text. The next chapter, David's own son, Amnon, ends up uh, abusing his sister in a gross way. Absalom, his other son, kills Amnon. And then Absalom rebels against his own father, takes all of his father's wives, and um, uh, there are kids in the room. I'm trying to like change the language here. But uh, he goes to uh, have relations with his father's wives on a rooftop. I mean, it's almost the irony here is, is thick here. The same rooftop that David started his sin when that tree root started to grow. Amnon uh, and Absalom follows in his footsteps of death and destruction. And so David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no excuses. There's no explanation. He realizes that he's the man who deserves to die. Now Bathsheba's baby is born, and then the sword continues in his house. At seven days old, the baby dies. Now this is hurt, death, people moving further from God, all fruit of one decision, a tree of evil springing from David's heart, feeding on David's decision, continues to grow. This man deserves to die, and you are the man. Now, you hear these stories, and I'm sure that you have some kind of identification with one of these. So whether you might be David today, um, you might be David that you know that one small decision that you made has led to a whole orchard of sin and destruction in its wake. Your sin affected you or hurt many others care close to you. Your decision on some kind of late, now, late night browsing session led to another secretive decision, led to another, and then you've destroyed relationships and trust. Something tells me you know what that is like. You know how your bad decisions can branch out and hurt those you care about the most. You know, perhaps you're, you identify more with Bathsheba today, that you have been taken advantage of by someone in power, even someone as great as David. You have been taken advantage of, insulted, perhaps someone re even religious. But Bathsheba's sin is not her own. David's sin is so expansive and so ugly that crouched over into her yard. And maybe someone else's sin today, you're sitting with the hurt and the destruction of someone else's decision crowding into your yard. It is not Bathsheba's fault that this happened, and it is not your fault either. But God, thankfully, can restore both. God can give us hope, whether we're the Davids or we're the Bathshebas today. See, at this point, if you're the Davids of the world, there's a temptation to think that our sin has disqualified us from the love and presence and favor of God. Our sin this month, this week, 
yesterday on the way to church this morning, which is the favorite time to fight with your spouse, uh, we may think that there is what our sin recently, it disqualifies us from everything. And this is a lie. And even looking at our thesis statement, the main idea for the sermon, our sin seduces and spins us out of control. We have no problem with that first half. We know the truth of that. You can think of three examples in your life right now where this is true, where your sin has spun out of control, got it out of hand, hurt you and those close to you. We have no trouble believing this first part. It's the second part that we have a hard time with. This sin seduces and spins us out of control until God's grace grounds us and give us, gives us life. That's the part that we struggle with. We don't believe that. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I think. You don't know who I've hurt. I don't, but someone, God does. And so that, if that first thing is true that we embrace so quickly, we have to also embrace the second part, is that God's grace grounds us and gives us life, which leads us to our fourth character in this narrative. After David confesses his sin, God steps in and clears David's sin. So this man deserves to die. This is indeed true for David, and it is true for us sitting here today. You and I and David deserve to be disqualified and exposed and punished for our sin. We can never argue with God who exposes our sin and punishes us for what we've done. But he doesn't do that. This is why Jesus came. You see, Jesus did not come to die for the David who was brave, courageous, God-fearing, Goliath-slaying. He came to save the conniving, God-ignoring, Bathsheba-raping, Uriah-killing David. That's the David he came to die for. Jesus did not come to save the, those around us who are religiously perfect, church-going, and the sin-avoiding but rather he came for the lying and the cheating and the imperfect and the hiding your browser history person. That's who he came to die for. You know, a, a verse that gives great hope to this is Romans 5.8. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about where David is in this sin and all of the destruction that his decision has, has led to. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And maybe you need to hear this for you today. Because maybe you think, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I've hurt. You don't know what I've looked at on the internet. You don't know who I've met secretly. Let me say this again. But God showed his love for you in that while you were still a sinner, and you can put any list of sin under there, Christ died for you. This is great comfort, friends, great comfort for us when we refuse to want to believe it. We don't want to believe that. And if you're not a Christian here today, this same message is for you. There is no different whether you're a Christian or not. The Christians who, call, who proclaim Christ here in this room are not any better. We're still struggling with this tree that's growing out of our own sin that we have to continue to address and cut down through the mercy of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian today, that this same truth is for you. While you are still a sinner, and that could be right now, being a sinner, Christ died for you. And all of that junk that you bring to Jesus, Jesus takes willingly. Willingly. So this means that Christ died for what John Piper likes to call the respectable sins. And you know, the respectable sins. You know, if I asked you right now, if I passed the microphone around, 
and I just said, what, what are you working on? I, what are you like uh, struggling with? Pride, anger, I work too hard, I care too much. Uh, you, you know, it's all, all of these could be sins, okay? They're like pride is definitely a sin. We can idolize work. We can have anger problems. All of those things are true, 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 true. Christ died for all of those. But I don't think we need help with that as much as believing that Christ also died for those sins that we would be so embarrassed and ashamed to say aloud. We are so embarrassed and ashamed, we don't say them out loud. The stealing, the sexual depravity, lying to those who we love. Jesus' invitation is for those sins as well as for the respectable ones. I mean, I think of David and all of these machinations that he goes through to cover his sin. All of this must have been so tired. All of this planning and plotting and scheming must have been exhausting for you as well. For when you're trying to cover up your sin, aren't you tired of the struggle and the hiding? Jesus gives you peace. Jesus gives you rest. Now, our sin feeds all kinds of branching, producing the worst kind of fruit. Even after we're a Christian, our decisions are still ugly. We have poisonous apple trees all over the place because of our decisions, even in Christian communities. Jesus is the path to removing this curse, and we need to embrace that. And we're going to see this here, because even with this adulterous relationship, this sinful relationship that comes from David, he's now married to Bathsheba, and David and Bathsheba have another child after the first child dies, and that child is Solomon, ends up being the wisest of all kings. And a new branch comes from David's wickedness. God has even restored David's terrible decisions that hurt and killed people. But now, through Solomon, comes through the lineage, comes Jesus. If we look in the New Testament, Solomon is mentioned on the lineage of Jesus. God restored the tree that, of David's evil. Je- Jesus comes from the lineage of these two people. Not David, I'm sorry, not Uriah and Bathsheba, but David and Bathsheba. It doesn't make sense, but we serve a God who redeems broken paths. This Jesus can redeem your broken path just like he redeemed David's broken path. And this grace to us comes in kind of two ways. One of them is through Jesus, as I mentioned. The most basic practical application we can ever have is to confess our sins to Jesus. And don't let this temptation seep in that your sin disqualifies you. It didn't for David, and it won't for you. Whatever it is, the bigger the sin, the more grace uh, is where Jesus comes to you. And that would be the first practical application. And the second one is just as practical, and that is that we need to seek out Nathans in our life. With whom do you have a relationship or a friendship to confront you in your sin? Now think about the relationship between David and Nathan. Somehow they were friends because Nathan can come in and start blabbing on about this story when David had other things to do, other sins to hide. But rather, do you have somebody who is close enough to you to ask you hard questions. Now, I know you may want to say your spouse, and that's all cute. You're the cutest couple I've ever seen in my life. However, a spouse should be one of many, one of many who can ask you hard questions. So a godly friend or a mentor ought to be someone who encourages you, spurs you on, and when needed, confronts you and gets in your face. And so let me ask you, who is the Nathan in your life, could you even have, do you, could you even name one? 
I have several Nathans in my life who can step in to my life when I step out of line. Three of them are in the States, Dave, Mark, John, evidently all one-syllable names uh, that I can be friends with. So if you're a two-syllables, I'm sorry. Uh, and so all, the, the ones in the States, they ask me good questions. They ask me hard questions. Uh, and so it helps me to stay, stay close to Christ. They spur me on for Jesus. However, while I appreciate those three men immensely, I need men here, too, to ask me those questions. In this room, there are men who would ask me hard questions. Could you name someone right now? Is there someone in this room or at least on this island that would ask you a question about something about you, about your walk with Christ? I was a Christian for close to 20 years, close to 20 years before anybody ever asked me a real hard question related to sexuality. 20 years! And it wasn't until my friend Mark, he asked me, I'll clean this up for, for a crowd today, but his question to me, I, I, we were kind of new, newly friends, and we were in a small group of men, and he's like, I'm going to change the wording, but uh, he's like, all right, I want us to talk about when the last time you looked at digital Bathsheba's and acted on that. Uh, Ron, you go first. Nobody has ever asked me that question in my life, and now I have to answer in front of a bunch of people. But I'll tell you what that question did. That question that Mark asked me 15 years ago or so, that question has changed how I live as a Christian with sexual purity uh, and other areas. I can tell you more about that if, privately if you're interested. But just the question helps make sure that I stay on track. And I'm not talking about like someone's going to try to get you in trouble, but I want things in my heart. I want to be close to Christ. I want to be faithful. And I cannot do that alone. And men, I'm going to talk to you for a second. You can't either. If everything is true on what we read in religious and secular text and press, is that men, as you get older, you have fewer and fewer friends. There is a problem with male friendship. <clears throat> now, you are less likely than your wives or your moms or your sisters to have this strong Christian friend in place. You are a lot less likely. Maybe you say things like I used to say, and I really did say these things aloud, such as, I don't need it, I'm fine. I'll ask for help if I need it. Or I don't like other people in my business. I don't need a bunch of people asking me a bunch of questions about things. Well, let me be bold here. As probably the oldest person in this room, I'm looking around, I think so, I think I am, that men, if you say those things, and that's keeping you away from a true Nathan in your Christian life, you are a fool. You are a fool. Because we need each other to come along, lock arms, walk with Christ together. And if you willingly are saying, I don't need it, you are a fool. And your Christian life is going to stagnate. You see, the older we get, the more senior we are at work, the higher the rank, the more the status, we think we need it less. But those are the times where we need it, need it more because you're gonna start believing your own press releases. And that is not good for your Christian life. And so we need people in our lives to ask some hard questions. And we do that here. We have some instant setups right now here at Pillar. If you cannot say who your Nathan is right now, who's on this island today, that you see, you see somewhat regularly, then here are two ways. I'm gonna make it so easy for you, okay? So easy. Missional communities and fight clubs. 
Missional communities, that's what we call them here, maybe your last church, small groups, community groups, life groups, something like that, is that we have 10, 15, 20 people or so meeting regularly together in order to live life together. While this right here on Sunday morning from 11 to 12.30 is important, this is not where Christian growth primarily happens. Christian growth primarily happens across dinner tables, talking, sharing, praying one for another. That's where things happen. So if you can't even think of a name for a Nathan, or if your Nathan is really lame, which there are a lot of lame Nathans there. I'm really getting mileage out of this Nathan, aren't I? Uh, it's not over yet. So uh, if your Nathan is weak, missional communities is where you should start. And I, at the end of service today, I'll announce there are three new ones even opening. So if you still have no idea where you're going, we can get you plugged in. And then the other area is fight clubs, where we are fighting sin together. These are groups set up of two, three, four people, uh, and we can ask those hardest questions. And it's relatively easy. How are you treating your spouse? How are you treating your kids? What sin are you trying to overcome now? Three easy questions. I mean, you can ask any question you want, but you don't have to know anybody well enough to be able to start important discussions on that. If you don't have any Nathans in your life, Nathan Massey preached last week. You can ask Nathan to be your Nathan. It makes it a lot easier uh, if you need a real Nathan. If you, don't have, if you want to get involved with a fight club or a missional community, right back there at the iPod, iPad uh, kiosk right near the coffee, just throw your name in there. Uh, Vince manages the um, fight club, so you put your name in there. Vince will connect you, and you'll meet over coffee and ask, start the relationship of godly men trying to walk arm in arm together for the good of Christ. And so the idea that you talk about things, is it awkward? Yeah, yeah, it's awkward. Uh, no problem there. It's going to be awkward when someone asks you when the last time you looked at digital Bathsheba's. Um, that's an awkward question. But is it good? Oh, it's good. It is really good because that could get you to look at all areas of your Christian life that you want to grow in. I'm just focusing in on one, but there are all areas that you can grow in. Well, David, after this, is transformed. And so we, before we read Psalm 51, I want to tell you about Hank Williams. You know Hank Williams, country singer, 1940s. I, I watched Ken Burns' country music documentary. I'm not a country music fan, but I, I think I am now. Uh, but th in this documentary, there's a story about Hank Williams. Now, Hank Williams, if you've heard his songs, if I played his songs, you will have heard them, I guarantee. He's like really important underpinnings of all country music today. And so uh, D Hank Williams has this story that he's coming back, or uh, he's leaving his house, going to the airport. Now, Hank Williams was a terrible man, treated his wife terribly. He was a drunk, a drug addict which ended up costing him his life. Uh, terrible man, always drunk, always on drugs, and his mom picked him up. When you're a grown man, your mom has to take you to the airport. There's, there's a problem, but that, we'll leave that to the side. So his mom is given a, taking a, a ride to the airport. He's drunk in the back seat, can't even sit up. And his mama said something like, oh, Hank, look, I see the, I see the light of the airport. It's getting close. And he started mumbling in the back seat, I see the lights. I see the lights. It turned into the song, by the time he got to the airport, he wrote most of, I saw the light. You know this song? I'm going to sing it anyway, so I don't care. I saw the light, no more darkness, no more night. 
Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. That took some guts, and I don't care. I did it. Now, that's not what I'm telling you about. But what I wanted to tell you about is something that a commentator in the documentary said after that. He said, because this song is just such a powerful song. It's written by a drug dealer that churches used to sing. I don't think they really, maybe your church may have sang it at one time, but generally churches sang it in the 50s, 60s. Um, It's written by a drugged out man on the way to an airport. But the commentator said, when an artist gets something right for himself, he gets it right for everyone. And I love that idea. When an artist gets it right for himself, he gets it right for all of us. And Psalm 51 is a paired selection to our story with, with uh, Bathsheba because David gets it right for himself and he gets it right for every single one of us. So the heading in the Bible for Psalm 51, it'll say a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, this is a psalm that recognizes the brokenness of sin and the incredible grace and forgiving power of Jesus. Psalm 51 is such an important end book of this story with David and his sin and the roots that get so ugly. So we heard a little bit. I'll just read a little bit of it. We heard uh, some of it, and we're going to sing a version of this uh, right after I'm done here in a minute. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse my sin. Then we jump down a bit. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Skipping down. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. We see this main idea that I had today in these verses. David got it right for himself. He had a right look at God's forgiveness. No matter what sin has done, our sin seduces and spins us out of control, but God's grace grounds us and gives us life. And we see that life so well in Psalm 51. I mean, imagine if we here at Pillar Okinawa, we're a church where Psalm 51 is always on our hearts, bringing our sin to God, to the throne of grace, to the throne of forgiveness, to the throne of Jesus, if that was our posture here, rather than plotting and covering and hiding. Because friends, all of that plotting, covering and hiding, aren't you tired of it? Isn't it time to let that go and bring it to the throne of Jesus? Now, we here are not people who have it all together. I hope you know that already. You're like, yeah, I've been to this church. I know you don't have it together. And that's good. That's a good thing. We're not putting on masks. We're not putting on any kind of facades. But we want to be the Davids after Nathan rather than the Davids before Nathan, covering and hiding. We want exposure and confession. Imagine if all of us here at Pillar were looking for Nathans in our lives to lean into and to listen for and to be confronted, and maybe to confront where needed. This is what the body of Christ ought to look like. We're not meant to walk this Christian walk together. We're no lone rangers, but we are together fighting for each other's good. We need each other to live together, to grow together, to encourage together, and at times to confront together. And if we did this, we would have a different kind of apple tree sprouting up all over here. 
not the poisonous ones that comes from scanning rooftops and covering up sin, but rather those that come from a life transformed by Jesus and proclaiming his goodness and his forgiveness and his kindness for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. And we're reminded that no matter our sin, your grace is greater. And I pray that you would make this true in the hearts of all of us today, Lord. Help us to remember that your death, burial, resurrection pays for sins, the small and the great, and we are grateful to you for that. Amen.